Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. What a wonderful day for us as believers as we come and celebrate the Christ of the cross, but today especially the Christ of the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, and Christ is not there dead in the ground. Uh, most of the world recognizes this day in some way, shape, or form. Uh, there'll be a lot of uh, Christian traditions, of course, and there'll be some pagan traditions, and then there'll be just some traditions that are just fun. I think one of them is that I will probably eat a lot of delicious food today, um, and I hope the same for you. Uh, the, the other thing is it's going to kind of be a, a little bit new, possibly, that there's also some Easter Bunny dad jokes to be enjoyed. I'm going to give you one as a sampling. Um, here we go. What do you call ten rabbits marching backward together? A receding hairline. So dads, there you go. Feel free to use that tomorrow around the water cooler. Okay, enjoy. Moms and older teens, please don't beat your dads up. All right. uh, we'll take a quick detour from continue on specifically in Joshua, going to Joshua 8. And today we're going to take the time to enjoy and preach through this great event called the resurrection. Uh, we'll celebrate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ defeating Satan's sin and death in this action. But we're going to do it from kind of an unlikely angle. So what I'd like you to do is turn to Hosea 2. I know, it's a rough place to start. If you know anything about Hosea, you're like, oh, is this really where you're going to start? Yes, that's where we're going to start. Um, I know it's tough when this day usually we celebrate happiness and joy and pastel-colored eggs. Um, let's start here, though, today. I want us to go back and consider Hosea and the wife that he took, Gomer. We know that God commanded Hosea to take this woman who was a prostitute. And their relationship would be one that displayed the relationship between a faithful God, Yahweh, and an unfaithful, whoring Israel. In chapter 2, the Lord begins to explain how he is going to handle this unfaithful people because of what they have done in their infidelity. In chapter 2, you have in verse 6 and 9 and 14, if you take a look, you're going to see there, therefore, therefore, therefore. He is talking about how he is going to treat Israel, what he is going to do. In verse 6, you'll see he will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. That sounds bad. Verse 9, I will, take her, I will take back her produce, her grain, wine, and her oil. All these things that seem to be produce of the land. And then we get to verse 14. And what we're expecting, you and I are thinking, okay, there's three. Obviously, the last one is going to be this big triumph of possible terrible punishment or maybe even destruction. We know what the, this, this wife looks like and what she acts like. But instead, we read these words from the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Now, what in the world is this about? You know, in the midst of building judgment, we're getting there, and we're getting there, 
we have this promise of hope in this book of Hosea. Like this promise that the Lord will deal tenderly with Israel. He'll treat her kindly and love her like no other one could except who is faithful to their covenant promises in marriage. One who is willing, despite infidelity, despite many whorings, is willing to go back with all of his might and win this woman back because he loves her. And God tells them this is what he will do. And the truth is, it doesn't make any sense. What we see here is it's a love that's unlike any other love. It's self-sacrificing. It's self-giving. It's concern for the other person. And we have God here showing us that he indeed is the God of grace and mercy and steadfast love that he told us he was back in Exodus 34. In verse 15, though, you're going to take a look there and you're going to see this interesting phrase that should catch our attention, especially if you've been at Cornerstone the last few weeks. This should catch our attention. He says he will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. It's interesting. I mean, last week we learned where that valley got its name, how it came to be known as the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. We left Joshua 7 with the final words being this. Listen, therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. So how is it that here in Hosea, he is telling his people that he will make this terrible, troubling place, the Valley of Achor, where we had rejection and we had punishment and we even had destruction of this man Achan. How will he make this place a door of hope? How does that work? And just quite honestly, what does that mean? What are we talking about here? It seems to be a good thing. It seems like some sort of reconciliation in the relationship. Or maybe it's just like some sort of flowery way to say that all will work out well and it's going to be hopeful. To understand this, it's important for us to have a good grasp on the valley of Achor that we need to understand Joshua 7. And lucky for us, or excuse me, providentially for us, we heard Joshua 7 last week. We do know what's going on in the valley of Achor. We do know what happened there. And if you remember, in chapter 7, we learned that not only would God's wrath and judgment be poured out on non-Jews, the Canaanites, we've been dealing with some heavy stuff lately, not only that, it's actually broader than that. It's not about nationality. If you remember, the chapter opens with the narrator telling us that the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Verse 1 tells us that Israel broke faith in regards to the devoted things. Achan had taken some of the devoted things and therefore he was made to be a devoted thing for destruction. He was looking just like Jericho. But in so doing, in this event, it became very clear that God's anger against a broken covenant was no joke. That he was dead serious about the covenant he made between him and his people and that he would not just let it go for the people who had supposed to be strong, courageous, and careful to do every word of the Lord. As a preliminary result, we saw last week that 36 soldiers died. The whole nation melts into fear. Their hearts become water. And the reputation of Yahweh is set at stake in a land that is hostile to these people. Eventually, through the course of a couple of different things that happen, we see that it is revealed that Achan has sinned. And that he is the one that has brought anger, not just on himself, but on the people of Israel. So in all of this, we learn that, you know, we, we all who are not covenant-keeping people 
all who have not found forgiveness and rest, all those who do not trust him and him alone, or as Deuteronomy 6 says, all who do not love them with their heart, soul, and mind, these will face the wrath of God, whether they are Jew or not. As Rahab proved to trust and love and obey God, even though she was a national Canaanite, she proved to be a believer, a truster in Yahweh, someone who actually loved him more than her own people. He didn't, you know, she was showed Israel that faith was actually the chief concern that brought one into a right relationship with Yahweh. And Achan, Achan's the exact opposite. What Achan shows us is the exact opposite. He shows us that despite physically being a Jew from the tribe of Judah, no less, he has found that by his actions and by his own admission, he is a Canaanite at heart. This was the message from last week, and it was the right message. But today what I want us to do is to like, take a look at this, and I actually want us to zoom out just a little bit. You've heard the, the phrase, uh, you can't see the forest for the trees. Usually used in some sort of pejorative sense, but the idea here is you're too caught up with the details to see what's going on in the bigger picture, right? Well, sometimes it's good to look at the details. And if we're talking about forests and trees, maybe even going, taking a piece of bark off and actually taking a magnifying glass and look even deeper. Those are good pieces for us to understand. But likewise, it's good for us to back up and look at the whole forest. We start to see, oh, there's a stand of pines over here, and you can see there must be some sort of water source over here because we have a totally different group of trees over here. And then, let's get in a helicopter, and we go up even higher. And now we're seeing the whole forest as a unit, as it, it stands within a huge valley, perhaps. What we're talking about is perspective, right? Instead of just being here looking at a tree, we're seeing a couple trees. And as we look further back, and I don't knock this stool over, we see even more trees and all the things that are going on. And we get up and we see the whole plan of this forest. Each layer is a helpful perspective for us. It's not to say that one type of observation is good and the other ones aren't. All of them help us understand the forest better, understand the trees and what's going on throughout the whole thing. So what we're doing this morning We've been walking the last eight weeks through this forest, as it were, and understanding each tree and watch how it gets built up. I want to take what we're understanding in chapter 7 and pull it up over the larger story, and not just the story of Joshua. I'm talking about over the whole story of redemption or of salvation history. We're going to learn something about how God works, and we're going to be pointed to something far better than what we learned just in Joshua. Something for more significant, far more significant and far more grand within the scheme of salvation history. Remember what Joshua's name is. You guys remember? Yahweh saves or Yahweh delivers. Right in his name, we'll see that he means business, that this is bigger than just Joshua alone. Today, we are going to see that even in the details of Joshua's telling of history and what's going on here, God is giving us hints and foreshadows of how he will save his people. When we read verse 1 of chapter 7, we look and we're perplexed. Because the first thing that it says is that all of Israel broke faith. Now you and I already know the story, right? But we, we covered this last week. Let me listen to verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And listen to this. And the anger of the Lord burned against Achan, right? No. And the anger of the Lord burned against all of Achan's house, right? 
No. I'm going to read it now. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, there's something here that we really don't like. It seems as though Israel, covenant Israel, the corporate body of God's people, somehow have broken faith, and now the anger of the Lord burns against them as a people. All this because of one man's disobedience. I don't know if it's it's true for you, but it doesn't seem fair to us, most of us, the way that we think of individuality and how this works. On first hearing this, we, we really don't believe that one man's sin could stay in all of a whole nation. And yet that's what Joshua says in chapter 7 here, a couple different times actually. So we believe it and, and we wonder what will happen with this then. But God, who is rich in mercy, who has had his anger on the whole nation, enters through and shines the light of truth into Joshua. And he tells him exactly what's going on. He tells them that the problem is Achan, that they have a Canaanite in their midst, and he needs to be destroyed, as the rest of Canaan was to be destroyed, just like Jericho. Joshua responds, who would have thought? I didn't know this, but now he makes complete sense to him and to the people, and so they obey. Achan's sin then was warranted the divine judgment of God. And if the price of sin is not paid, the people will suffer the consequences of broken faith. And get this, they will then be complicit in Achan's disobedience. In other words, if Achan is not rejected, if he is not punished, if he is not killed and destroyed, the people of Israel will face the exact same judgment themselves. And so, in God's divine mercy, he makes a way for the whole nation to receive a renewed relationship with God. In his divine mercy, the wrath of God is turned away from his people because the one man, Achan, is put to death and the price of his sin is paid for. Now, some of you are already tracking with me. You're thinking about this, and some light bulbs are turning on. In the story of Achan, we are seeing a structure emerge A structure that develops and helps us to understand, in part, how God works in history. In the story of Achan, we are seeing this come true. Achan brings sin into the whole camp of Israel. There is a way for the wrath of God to be satisfied. There is. They must reject, punish, and destroy this sinner in their midst, removing him and killing him. It's like we are seeing that there is such a thing as a representative, Someone that actually is a federal head. Someone here that is a representative's actions and those actions have incredible consequences for a nation. In Joshua 7, we're left hoping. After we're done Joshua 7, we're like, we never, ever, ever want to go back to the Valley of Achor. We don't want to mess with that ever again. That was a place of horror and disgust and seeming like violence and brutality. We don't want to be there. We, we want to see instead, we want to get it right. We want to have perfect obedience. We want to have 100% compliance. We want to be truly faithful to the covenant of Yahweh. And that's right. That is the right desire that we as believers ought to have. There's only one problem. And I haven't even finished the book of Joshua. You know the problem. They can't do it. It's impossible. Instead of being 100% compliant and being faithful to every word of Yahweh, Unfortunately, we know what happens. God's people will not remain faithful to the covenant. We know that they will break faith again and again and again. 
We know that they will not be strong and courageous to be careful to do all the law of Moses. They will become so idolatrous, so unfaithful, so disgusting that God describes them as a whoring prostitute wife who loves all of her lovers more than she loves the man that she covenanted together with. And so, what does this entity deserve? What is it that they will receive for their sin? What have we learned from Achan? A man who displayed covenant unfaithfulness. They will receive the same judgment that came to him in the valley of Achor. Rejection, punishment, destruction. It may come in other forms. We've watched this throughout the Old Testament. But Israel's history clearly shows that God did not allow his people to continue on in their covenant unfaithfulness and that he had every right to totally destroy them. Now it's time for us to go back to Hosea 2. As all of Israel and Judah rebels, as it seems like God will rightly destroy his people, he says, therefore, 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 he offers hope in the midst of this thing. We have this coming judgment, we're ready for it, and instead he talks about hope. that He will renew this relationship somehow with his people. What in the world? The prophet Hosea shows us that although the nation will not be cleared for her guilt, there is hope for the future. He is speaking a prophecy. Think about this. Hosea is speaking a word to his people, to God's people, and it is not going to be fulfilled in his time period. I'll tell you in just a minute, you're going to see what happens to them. It's not going to be considered fulfilled in his time period at all. But remember that it's going to be written down and it's going to be preached over and over again. And the people will know that there is some sort of coming future hope. God is going to do something that brings his people back into a relationship with him like never before, almost like when they were first loved and became his nation back as they left Egypt, as he allures her back. We know from 2 Kings, now Hosea is being written in the time of those kings, remember that. Even though it comes way after in our Bibles, it's happening during this time period. We know from 2 Kings that Israel, though, will be defeated They will be taken captive by Assyrians and eventually this northern kingdom, Israel, will be lost to history. And then we have Judah, the southern southern part here. They're defeated as well. And they're exiled as well to Babylon. And they're almost destroyed but eventually sent back to their land. I mean, it's pretty easy to see the amount of destruction that happens to his people that he does not clear the guilty. That he will bring judgment on them. So then, What is this hope that he speaks of? Is it just the fact that a few from Judah were able to go back? Is that the hope? What is this hope that he speaks of here? Sometimes, the Sunday school answer is the right place to start. Jesus. Consider Achan for a moment, if you will. What brought the anger of the Lord upon the people of Israel? Was it not the sin of the one man, Achan? And what was it that brought the Lord to turn away his burning anger from his people? Was it not the death of the one man, Achan? Was it not his rejection, his punishment, his removal from Israel, his pain, his agony, and eventually his destruction? Last week, and and, and we just read it in Romans 5, we, we read through this, thinking it through. Nathan just read it. Let me just read one verse for you again. Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience... Adam, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, 
Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Do you see the pattern that's developed here all the way back from Joshua? We're starting to understand. In Joshua 7, we talked about this structure of representation. We saw Achan's sin bring the anger of God on all of Israel. But as upsetting as that is to us, and it's upsetting, it is equally as good that God would remove that anger through one man's judgment, his rejection, his punishment, his destruction. Because Achan was rightly judged, the Lord turned from his burning anger. The story of Achan shows us many things. We talked about this last week. A lot of really important things for us to dig into. But I want us to see this. that The story of Achan shows us that like the wrath of God is turned away from his people because of Achan's death, the wrath of God is turned away from all of his covenant people because of the death of Jesus. This is going to be new for some of you. Listen to this statement. Jesus is the better Achan. Now, we don't like that. That sounds like we're saying like they're in the same place. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. We obviously all believe that Jesus is better than Achan. But I want to talk about this. Joshua 7, Achan is seen here that he is acting as a weak representative for the people, and through his death, God's anger is turned away from his people. In no way am I saying that Achan's death atoned for anyone else's sin. That's not what we're saying here. And he was not sinless like Christ. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, the truth is, when we hear us say that word, in the likeness of Achan to Jesus, it's so shocking to us that it repulses us that we would even say those things. Achan was wicked. Our Savior was righteous, perfectly holy. Achan was guilty and deserved punishment. Our Savior is innocent, never once one vile thing from his mouth. Achan thought only of himself. Our Savior was selfless, and because of his love for the Father and for his people, he was willing to be offered up for his covenant people. Think about this. Jesus suffered as Achan suffered, except worse. Jesus was rejected as Achan was rejected, except far worse. Jesus was removed from his people and treated as a public display of shame for all to see, just like Achan, except worse. For all is for history to look back and those who do not believe mocking this man, Jesus. Jesus was killed like Achan was killed and God turned his back on Jesus as he turned his back on Achan. Don't you see? Don't you see the grotesque, the horrific, the violent nature of the cross? Do you understand what this is all about? Do you understand that that judgment was laid on Jesus Christ? The same judgment that was laid on Achan, a man who deserved every bit of it. But at the cross, it's laid on the Son of God. Don't you see how ugly and disgusting this is? Or don't you understand that on the cross we're seeing divine judgment against sin, against covenant unfaithfulness? What we're watching at the cross is the Father pour his wrath out on Jesus. For what purpose? Why must a righteous man be treated like Achan? How can this be so? It's because there's no other way for God to be just and to be merciful. 
There's no way other than this way that he can be truly just and righteous and holy and a God of love and mercy withholding his wrath for somehow, some way. How can those two truths abide? God is love. That's exactly why he sent Jesus. God is holy. That's exactly why he had to die. Sin cannot be passed over without death. The holiness of God cannot stand unanswered. It it can't have unanswered sin in its presence. He will not allow that to happen. And so there's only one way for God to be who he said he was back in Exodus 34. Listen to the words. I'm going to say them again. This has become a bedrock of my understanding of the holiness of God and his love for us. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What are we? Are we not the guilty? You see, your sin and my sin, they've not been passed over. It wasn't like God said, these are good people, I know they've done bad stuff, I'm going to look over top of it and just put us to the side. Our sin is an affront to a holy God. Our sin that we've done already in our past, our sin that we will commit today and tomorrow and in the future, all of this sin must be taken care of. It's not innocuous, as though it doesn't matter somehow. We have offended a holy God, and his wrath is against sin. But the good news, brothers and sisters, the, the, the good news is that that's not the end of the story. The good news is that Jesus died to death that was ours. He went there, and the wrath that is so rightly should be poured out on you and me was poured out on Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus died for us. He was rejected. He was punished for us. He was taken out of the camp for us, separated from his people for us. And so we see him wounded, suffering, bleeding, and dying so that you and I might have life. Miraculous. Absolutely miraculous. We see God offering his son as a substitute for us. He is a representative and he takes the hit. All of our sin that we so rightly should pay for gets placed on Jesus. And he instead takes that divine judgment. The son has gone willingly as a sheep to be slaughtered so that he might pay the price for our sin. And now, let us consider another truth that we've learned already from Joshua. What did Rahab teach us about the entrance into this covenant community? Was it about race? Was it about her her, her skin color? Her genes? Her nationality? Was it about her ritual? Or was it maybe about her religion? No. No. It was about faith in God alone. She showed by her confession and by her life actions that she loved God more than her whole city of Jericho. She loved him and showed that she truly was one who had faith. The same is true for us today. For God so loved the world. You guys know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, trusts in him, should not perish but have eternal life. And we're not talking about belief like, okay, I'm good with like thinking about Jesus did that. I believe that he was a real man, that this happened, that he died for sins. That's, that's good. No, no, no. 
We're talking about a trust that is called love for God. One that has so much such invested that we say, he is my only king and I have nothing else to hold on to. Not this world, not the people around me, not my religion, but only Jesus alone. That's what we mean when we say, if you believe, if you trust him. That's why we call it lordship salvation, that he has become then the Lord of our life. And anything less than that, total devotion is not true devotion. It's not true trust in him. And it's secondary. And really what it is is syncretism, us trusting something else besides our Lord and Savior. But because of this beautiful thing that he has given called faith, we understand that we too can know this king. So friend, if you're here, and you don't know what I'm talking about, and you don't know this Jesus, and you've not repented and made him your Lord and understood him to be everything that I'm talking about, repent. Know him alone. Trust him. He's the only one that can save your soul. I cannot. You coming to church cannot. None of the things that you do on this earth can help you. Jesus alone took the wrath that you and I deserve. And so we must trust him alone. Here in Joshua, the sixth book, only the sixth book in the the Bible so far, before we ever get to the most significant talk about the suffering servant in Isaiah or in these other inklings of Christ's coming, we have here, I get a picture of God's anger abated by the death of one man. And we begin to see the type of rejection and destruction that the Messiah would experience for his covenant people. We glory in the cross. To those of us here whose Lord is Jesus, the cross is both horrific and beautiful. It's why we put it around our neck. If you wear a necklace like that and you understand what you're putting around your neck, it's that place, the cross, is where justice and, and, and mercy met so that the wrath of God could properly be poured out for me and you on Jesus Christ. Now, how is this an Easter sermon? <laughs> you talked a lot about the cross, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I want you to think about the end of chapter 7 for a moment, Joshua. Think about it for it. Verse 26 says this. After they had stoned him, they do this. And they raised over him, Achan, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Achan was punished, stoned, burned, and then he's buried beneath a huge pile of stones covered by rock. His grave stands to this day as a memorial to teach us about punishment for covenant unfaithfulness. And we rightly understood that last week. And although he is now probably bits of dust in the desert somewhere underneath these rocks, his body never left that place. That's where it was. He goes back to dust where he was made from. But Jesus, he's not under the rock anymore. Did he not also covered by a stone that was rolled away? Because that Savior emerged from the grave and he could not be beat by death? He is unlike Achan in that he destroyed the grave. That he is different from every other savior before him. He was the only one who could suffer under the complete wrath of God, be killed, and rise again. That's who we're talking about. Unlike Achan, he proves that the cross is glorious. Unlike Achan, he is able to endure the wrath of God and rise again. He proves to us and to the world that through his resurrection that he has overcome and that he alone is worthy. There is no other name that is worthy of praise. Not one. Everything else is idolatry. Whatever 
how big or small it is, whether it's small in your heart or big or a big idol, it doesn't matter. He is the only one who can be rightly getting the title Lord. Where Achan left memorial to trouble, sin and judgment, the valley of Achor, our Savior went into the valley of destruction and sin and judgment and instead left us an entrance into his kingdom, the door of hope. Do you understand now when Hosea says that he will make the valley of Achor a place of judgment and wrath and divine judgment for sin, and he will make that into a door of hope? This is glorious. In the cross, that's what he did. In the cross, now we have this door of hope, an entrance into true life in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. This is the one that we worship today. This is the God of Easter. And why we gather each Sunday so that we might proclaim to the world and to one another so that we don't forget because we're so forgetful and unbelieving, but to remind ourselves of our great Savior who is worthy to be called the Lord of all of earth. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great love for us. And we also thank you for your great justice. And as these things meet together, we realize, Father, there is no way for us to be saved except if someone else would take our place. Lord, I cannot stand before you in my own righteousness. I deserve everything that Achan got. I pray that you would work today that we would see you rightly, that we would see you as the glorious, loving, merciful, steadfast God who continues to give and give and give in his son Jesus, but who will by no means clear the guilty. But we thank you for taking care of our sin at the cross. And we ask that we would help, you, you would help us to see that you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.